let's jump into uh, Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at the second half. Last week we looked at the first 13 uh, verses pretty closely. And as we did that in verses 1 through 5, we saw that the Apostle Paul, the author of the book of Romans, who was also a Jew, he started off by expressing his sorrow over the fact that many of his fellow ethnic Jews had rejected Jesus Christ. And even though they had all kinds of advantages that they had been given by God to know and to understand the relationship that God wanted from them uh, and offered to them, they had rejected Jesus, their long-awaited Savior. And the question began, how, how in the world can that even be possible? Had God failed to make good on his promise to Israel. This was the first part of Romans chapter 9. And then starting in verse 6, Paul explains that God had not failed at all in keeping his promise to Israel. Paul states that there's actually a very good explanation as to why so many ethnic Jews had failed to, to surrender their life to Jesus Christ. And in short, it was this, that for, for some reason, in God's own choosing, he had chosen some of those ethnic Jews to have relationship with him and others not to. And that's a difficult, difficult thing for us to grab a hold of and to, to understand. Uh, but, but it's taught in Romans chapter 9 in many places that in some way and somehow, God's sovereignty, the fact that he is in complete control of everything, rules and reigns even in this issue of salvation. So for those of you who were here, you may remember that we talked about two different perspectives as it relates to salvation, as it relates to who will come into personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's like a, a two-sided coin. One side of that coin would be labeled election, and the other would be free will. We talked about the fact that when it comes to uh, election, people who believe in election believe that ultimately God chooses to draw certain people into relationship with him, and he doesn't choose all people into personal relationship with him. So sovereign people would say it's God who picks and God who chooses those who get saved. Free will is the other side of that same coin that believes, as the Bible teaches clearly as well, that anyone can come into personal faith with Jesus Christ. All they do is freely choose to put their trust and their hope in what Jesus Christ has done. And so salvation really is a, a matter of an individual choosing God. And if you missed last week, that may all be pretty confusing. Quite honestly, if you were here last week, that's going to be quite confusing. But it might help you if you missed to go back and listen to that message. Election then and free will somehow and in some way are both a part of God's sovereign plan for salvation. So last week's text was incredibly challenging because it is literally impossible to understand how a loving God could choose some to be in relationship with him and not others. It's also impossible to understand how free will fits into that. And the Bible teaches free will, that God died for, for all, that he desires all to come to know him. And in our second uh, part of Romans chapter 9, Paul is going to provide even some more evidence to support this idea that God, because he is sovereign, has the right to choose those that he, he wants to choose and not choose others. And from a human perspective, that simply does not seem fair. 
And I promised last week that we would start to address the fairness question, rather Paul would, right in verse 14. And so that's where we're going to launch off this morning is in verse 14. Paul addresses this fairness question as it relates to God's sovereignty and salvation. So this morning, I want to read the rest of chapter 9. And as I do, you're going to notice that Paul quotes a lot of Old Testament scripture as he goes along here in his writing. And we're not going to have the time to literally look verse by verse as we kind of did last week. But as I read, we're going to read a little, then I'm going to stop and make a couple of observations, point out a couple of truths that Paul is teaching. And I want to warn you ahead of time, like I did last week, that some of these truths will continue to challenge our sense of fairness. And after we take a quick look at the second half of Romans chapter 9, I want to get really, really specific and, and talk a little bit about what do you and I do when God does not make sense, when the way that God responds or doesn't respond to one of our life situations when God allows or doesn't allow certain things to happen? How can you and I respond when God doesn't make any sense, or to us anyway? I want to preface, God always makes sense because he's the all-wise, almighty God. Follow along in Romans 9, starting at verse 14. The Apostle Paul says, Well then, what shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He makes that statement in Exodus 33. Paul addresses the question that he knows people are going to have. Is God being unjust or unfair in choosing some but not choosing others? Just as he did with the twins Jacob and Esau. Paul goes on to reference a conversation that he had with Moses found in Exodus 33. And so take a look at the screen. I want to point you back to Exodus 33. Moses is talking with God, and Moses wants to understand and to know God better. So, God asked, so he asked God, would you show me your glory? And this is what God says. In verse 19 of Exodus 33, and the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. God's holiness would just have obliterated Moses. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you can stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face you must not see. Wow, what an experience that had to have been for Moses. Moses wants to see God's glory. He wants to understand who he is. And God says, I'm going to show you my glory, but you can only get the tiniest of glimpse. As I walk by, I'll cover your face. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And then he says something very, very interesting. He says, I will proclaim my name. That's what he tells Moses. And earlier in Exodus chapter 3, Moses had asked God, 
about his name. What, do you, what, what, are, what are they going to call you? And God says, I am who I am. That's the name God gives for himself. I am who I am. And in describing himself to Moses in chapter 33, God says something again that's really, really interesting. I will have mercy on who I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on who I have compassion. Church, and this is one of those difficult truths that we, we must wrestle with that sometimes causes us to misunderstand who God is. God is making a clear statement about his sovereignty or his control over absolutely everything. God, when he makes a statement, is very clear. He doesn't stutter over his words at all. He simply states that he has the rightful authority to, to rule and reign over everything, including who it is that he shows mercy to and, and who it is that he withholds mercy. And again, that statement can make God seem harsh or indifferent. When we look at Scripture as a whole and we understand God's nature, we understand that is not the case at all. God is never harsh or indifferent. But let me respond to you and, and, and challenge you with this thought. I believe the way that you and I think about God's statement that I will have mercy on who I will have mercy and I will have compassion on who I have com compassion, how we respond to that what that does to us as individuals tells us a lot about how accurate or how inaccurate our view of God is. It tells us about how large our view of God is or how maybe small our view of God is. Now, there's a lot in the next verses in chapter 9 that we don't have time to look at in detail, but I want to point out that Paul has a clear answer for the reason that God has the rightful authority to do whatever it is that he wants to do. Start reading with me in verse 16. Paul writes, It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a mere human, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Now, why does God have the authority to do whatever it is that he wants to do? In verse 21, we see that Paul gives an illustration that people back in Paul's day would have clearly understood. And it's an illustration that even us in more modern day can understand as well. You see, back in Paul's day, there were no so-called stuff marts where you just went out and, and bought your stuff. Instead, potters baked clay to make things like dishes and bowls and plates and containers of all kinds. 
So when the potter grabbed a lump of clay, he or she decided what they were going to make into that clay. It might be a, a nice dish that would be used for serving a dinner, or it might have been a pot that they used for wastewater or, or for garbage that was thrown out. It is the clay that is being created into something, and it is the potter who is doing the creating. And I think by this point, you can see what Paul is, is getting to here. As humans, we have no more right to tell God what he should or should not do, or what is just or what is unjust, then a lump of clay has to tell the potter what he or she should do when making it into something. It just doesn't work that way. God is the creator of all that is. Let that truth sink into your head and into your heart. God is the creator of all that is. He has a right to do with whatever he wants with his creation. Praise God that he is a loving and kind God. The Bible tells us that his mercies are literally new every single morning. In the book of James, we're reminded that God himself is the giver of every good gift. You think about anything good that you have, you have received or that you have enjoyed, ultimately, it's from the hand of our good God. However, while Jesus is definitely described as a friend of sinners, you and I need to understand Jesus is not our buddy, like we think of our, our fishing buddy or our golfing buddy or, or whatever. He is our Lord and he is our Savior. He is the creator and the master of the universe and beyond. Church, we need to accept the fact that God's character will not be defined or shaped by us or by our culture. God's character does not need to be redefined because God's character is perfect. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, why might God show mercy to some and give justice to others? That's the question. The rest of chapter 9 hints at a few possibilities. Let's read on verses 22 through 33. Paul writes in verse 22, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us whom he has called, but not only from the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And the Gentile is anyone who's a non-ethnic Jew. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my beloved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Paul has just described how from the beginning of all time, God had in plan and in mind to bring Gentiles, non-Jews, into his family. In verse 27, 
It says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though a number of the Israelites be like the sand on the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and with finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. In other words, we would have been completely wiped out. Verse 30 says, What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is, and this is a key, by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul's reminding us that nobody but nobody but nobody gets to heaven by being a good person or by being a religious person. The only way to heaven is by receiving God's gift of grace and mercy because of your faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Again, there is a lot contained in that section of scripture that we don't have time to cover, but I want to finish Romans 9 by pointing out from verses 22 and 23 a, a couple of things. I want, to, want us to then wrap up with some practical thoughts on how we can respond to God when we don't think he makes any sense. So here, here's the thing. In response to the accusation that God is unjust for choosing some and not others, in verses 22 and 23, Paul, Paul gives us a couple of clues as to why that might be. Let me read 22 and 23 again. He says, what if God, although in choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known and the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? As we wrap up Romans 9, I just want to point out three possible reasons these two verses give us as to why God exercised his sovereignty or his control in, in regard to salvation. And it's this. Number one, it's quite possible that Paul did this simply to demonstrate his just wrath towards sin by sending some to destruction. That's a, it's a hard truth, but verse 22 says it's possible that part of this deal was God demonstrating his, his justice and his wrath. The second thing might be that, that it is to make his incredible power known. We see in that section that part of God exercising his justice is to demonstrate his power, and he receives glory for doing that. And in verse, or the, the third thing in these verses that we see is that God displays the riches of his glory by showing mercy to others. We see God's justice, and we see his mercy. Church, Anytime we talk about God actually judging people for their sins, it's uncomfortable. It's a serious, serious reality. It's not something that we enjoy thinking about. However, I want to remind you that anyone who will experience God's wrath will simply get 
what they deserve. We literally, when you think of it, every single one of us, because of our sins, deserves to experience God's wrath. But for anyone in here who's put their faith and their trust in Jesus, we are going to receive mercy rather than God's justice. And I want to give you an illustration that might help us grab onto the truth that really all of us deserve uh, God's wrath and God's judgment. Think about three friends that you have. And imagine that these three friends tell you that they are going to rob a bank. Now, I would say to you, you guys need some new friends. But let's imagine that you have three friends that are going to rob a bank. And when you find this out, you get in your car and you drive over to where they are getting ready to, to launch into this bank robbery. And you plead with them. And you beg them not to do this horrible, wrong thing. And they don't listen to you. And in fact, they push you to the side and the three of them head to the door to get in their car and go and rob the bank. You have the ability and you jump on the last one out the door and you wrestle them to the ground and you refuse to get off of them. And they are not able to go with the other two to rob the bank. Your other two friends go and they rob the bank at gunpoint. And in the, the course of this bank robbery, they shoot and kill a guard and two customers. And they are arrested and they are sent to prison for the rest of their lives. Let me ask you, who was at fault that the two that got arrested got arrested and will go to prison for the rest of their lives? It's their own. They, they committed the bank robbery and killed three people and they deserve what they got. Can, can either of those two people blame anyone else that they're going to spend the rest of their lives in prison? A absolutely not. What about your third friend who was, is still to this day walking around free? Are, are they completely innocent? No, there's only one reason they are free because their intent was to join their other two friends. They are free because you lovingly and graciously held them back from doing this crime and you stepped in and rescued them. And church, in the same way, nobody goes to hell as an innocent person. At the same time, no one in heaven no one who will be in heaven can take any amount of credit for going there. Jesus deserves the credit alone. It illustrates and demonstrates the reality. If anyone is saved, the credit is God's alone. Anyone who faces judgment, the blame is all theirs. And while this might not make complete sense to us here on earth, when we get to heaven and we look back at how God uh, demonstrated his justice and his grace towards the people that he created. I am absolutely convinced that when we look at eternity past, we will be much more shocked and amazed at the number of people that God graciously saved than we are the number of people that God judged. Romans 9 church confronts us with the reality that there are times when God does not make sense to us. And so 
what can you and I do when we face experiences in life where God simply doesn't make sense to you and I? There's actually a ton of things that we can do, but I want to give you two suggestions this morning. Suggestion number one is this. Remember that God operates on a totally different level than any of us do here on earth. Last week, I started and I ended by uh, talking about Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, and I want to read that again for you. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Friends, I'd like to suggest to you that everything about God is exceedingly bigger than we are. His power, His wisdom, His love, even His fairness, His justice, His mercy, His kindness, everything about God is exceedingly bigger than we're able to understand. The truth is there are a lot of times in life when we will begin to think that we know better than the God of the universe knows. And in those times, we have simply forgotten who God is. And I want to put the truth that God's ways are higher than our ways and that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts in a little bit of a mental picture for you this morning. And so church, think about the fact that God literally spoke. However it took place, God literally spoke the universe into existence. Get a little picture of the universe there. The universe is 93 billion light years in diameter. 93 billion. That means if you were to travel at the speed of light, which I understand is 671 million miles an hour, if you could muster that speed, it would still take you 93 billion with a B years to travel across the known universe that God spoke into existence. Try to wrap your mind around that. What did, what did you create this week? <laughs> now, our universe may be too large of a scale, so let me, for the sake of illustration, bring it down a little bit. There are literally billions of galaxies in the known universe, and we live in a little galaxy called the Milky Way Galaxy. Now, I know that I've just lost some of you because you're thinking about a delicious candy bar rather than the, the galaxy. Within our galaxy, there are approximately 100 billion stars, which make up 100 billion individual solar system. A solar system is, is a star, what we call a sun, and whatever has its gravitational pull that orbits around it. Our solar system includes our sun and eight planets. So with, within our little bitty solar system, within our little bitty galaxy, within the great big universe, I want us to simply focus on the sun. So be clear, we're not talking about the other 100 billion stars in our tiny little galaxy or the 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. We're just talking about our own individual sun. At the core of our sun, it is 27 million degrees hot. 
27 million degrees hot. You and I travel this little world at 98.6. And if we work really hard and we rub our hands together with friction, apparently that has something to do with molecules in our hands and our skin, but that can generate five to six degrees of heat. So that's what we got uh, is five to six degrees. Yay, yay for us, okay? Church, God operates in every way at a totally different level. All of God is at a totally different level. Not just his justice, not just his power to create and display as he has in the universe. God's capacity and quality of love is on a totally different level. God's wisdom and understanding is on a completely different level. Church, have you ever thought about the fact that God has never said this? He's never said, I don't know. I'll have to think about that. Because God is from the end to the beginning. He doesn't have to think about anything. He knows it already. There is nothing that takes God by surprise. God's justice is on a different level. Even what doesn't make sense to us, even his fairness in terms of how salvation works is on a different level. His kindness, his mercy, his grace, it's all on a different level than ours. Church, of course, there are going to be times when God does not make sense to us. It's not because God doesn't know what he's doing. It's because we don't have the capacity to understand God at the level that he is. And when those times come, think 27 million degrees to the five or six that you and I bring to the table. Let that comparison uh, illustrate that God operates on a totally different level. When life doesn't make sense to us, when God refuses to respond in a way we think he ought to, when he doesn't answer our prayers the way we think we ought to, we need to remember, in part, that's because he's God. He's at a totally different level. I want to finish with a, a second suggestion for you. When God doesn't seem to make sense, consider God's heart. When we think of God's heart, we're talking about the essence of everything that he is, that we just described, his character, his justice, his love, his mercy. And I once again want to point you to a verse that we looked at not only this last Sunday, but Levi looked at in chapter 8 of Romans as well. In chapter 8 of Romans, verse 32, it says this. He who did not spare his own son but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? When God doesn't make sense, we have a tendency to doubt the goodness of God. It's been said that at the core, every sin you and I commit it is around doubting the goodness of God. I doubt that what God prohibits me to be involved in, he's, he's keeping something from me, so I'm going to go ahead and get involved with that anyway. Or he, he didn't give me this, and so he must not be a good God. When we doubt the goodness of God, we need to remember that God was willing to, to sacrifice his only son for our benefit. 
you know, we, we may have family and friends that have made some incredible sacrifices on our behalf for our well-being. And when family and friends do things like that, we tend to give them the benefit of the doubt that, that they love us even at times when, when it doesn't make sense. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus, the son, was willing to voluntarily come to this earth, which, again, to leave the glories of earth and come here is one thing, but then to live a completely sinless life and then take on the punishment for the sins that we've committed. Uh, again, that's like the potter paying the price for the, the clay. Uh, we don't understand it, but the Bible teaches that Jesus as an eternal being literally took an eternity's worth of punishment for our sin. Church, that's the heart of God. We can trust God even when it doesn't make any sense to us, even when we don't understand his plan. The band can head up now if they'd like, and they're going to lead us in a final song, but I've got one more little nugget that I want to share with you. Last week after the service, I had a, a wise lady here at Crossroads share something with me that she had someone share with her, and she passed it along to me, and it was so good, I wanted to pass it along to you. So with this whole idea, whether it's with God's sovereignty as it relates to salvation or anything in God's word, when we struggle to understand, this is what she said. We are called to be believers, not understanders. Isn't that great? We are called to be believers, to trust what God says in his word. We are never called to necessarily understand it all. Now, I'm not at all suggesting that it's wrong to desire or to attempt to understand God's word especially. We, we should. We should be, be striving to. And we have all kinds of resources that will help us understand more of who God is. And he's actually revealed a lot of himself to us. However, in these last two weeks, I hope you've come to understand there will be far more of God that we will not understand and that's okay. We're not called to understand everything. We're called to believe and to trust and to obey. And I want to invite you right now, if you would, to stand. We're going to close with a, a song. I'm going to pray beforehand. Uh, it's not lost on me that on Sunday mornings that uh, a number of you come in with really, really heavy hearts. It's not lost on me that all of us at some point in time go through seasons of struggle, uh, of incredible pain that causes us to doubt the goodness of God. It's not lost on, on me or any of our leadership here at Crossroads that um, some of you have been incredibly, incredibly wounded by people like me, by pastors, by leaders. Uh, for some of you, it's a stretch just to even be in an, in an organized church. We, we get that. I don't know what God wants to do with our remaining uh, few moments here and our, our last worship song, but I want to invite you, if you are here today and you, you really, again, are struggling with this whole idea that God is good, that he has a good plan in your life, that that might have even somehow sovereignly included some really, really horrible, painful things or a really wounding experience with a church. 
I would invite you as I pray and as we sing this last song and we've got a prayer team that will be up here if that's of help for you, to really ask yourself the question, is today a day that I might focus on God's goodness and on who he really is and, and surrender some of that hurt and pain and, and begin the long, hard journey again of trusting that God is good even when sometimes things that he allows don't really make a whole lot of sense to us. Just allow God, the Holy Spirit, to do whatever it is that he would want to do uh, in your life. Let me pray, and then uh, the man will lead us in a closing song. Father God, we confess that Romans 9, uh, on, on some levels, is not our favorite chapter of the Bible. We, we'd like to read chapter 8 probably more, but we, we confess and we acknowledge that it's there for a reason, and that um, just even the subtitles, God's sovereign choice, God's sovereignty. Uh, Lord, um, would you forgive us when in, in our arrogance and our pride, uh, in our, um, uh, our attitudes of just entitlement, that uh, we expect you to be something that you don't need to be. You, you are the potter, Lord, and we are the clay. Uh, you are the, the creator of all that is. You are the, the, the master of the universe. And Lord, even when it doesn't make sense to us, we declare that we believe and that we trust that you are good. And Holy Spirit, I would pray right now that, that you would move in a powerful way in this room, uh, in all of our hearts and minds, but especially in the hearts and minds of people that are really struggling to see you as the good God that you are. Lord, may we, uh, as we sing this final song, as we leave this morning, as we go about our day and our week, and we look at the sun, Lord, would you remind us once again that your ways are so, so much higher uh, and better than our ways, that it's not only your power and your justice, but it's your goodness, it's your tenderness, it's your love, it's your mercy, it's your everything, Lord, that is to our benefit and to your glory. May we begin to see you more accurately as the God that you are. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name, amen.